this year on the majority of Sundays, uh, we're going to be going back to the book of Ephesians and coming to the second half of the book. And for those with us last year, or for those that have read through and studied Ephesians, you all know that this is where the Apostle Paul's teaching decisively changes. In, in chapters uh, 1 to 3, we've got lots of doctrines, key truths that, that a Christian should, should know. And then in chapters 4 to 6, Paul really goes on to talk about the duty of a Christian. Lots of helpful instruction for how a Christian is to live. Well, last year we worked through uh, chapters 1 to 3, and I, I borrowed these headings from a, another pastor. I found them helpful. We looked at chapters 1 to 3 under the, the heading, The Wealth of the Christian, as the Apostle Paul really talks us through our glorious salvation. And this year, as we work through chapters 4 to 6, we're going to use two headings, the walk of the Christian. That, that is the main heading. But within that walk, of course, is the spiritual, the spiritual warfare of the Christian. So much of our time will be spent thinking very practically about how we should walk with God as Christians. Uh, in our church, with our brothers and sisters, at, at home, in the family, with our friends, at school with our work colleagues in the office, and also how to stand in the spiritual battles. And you see, in a number of ways, if you were to pull out an Old Testament verse to summarize the second half of Ephesians, you may well choose Micah chapter 6, verse 8. What does the Lord require of you in light of your glorious salvation? Ephesians 1 to 3 what it is to act justly, it is to love mercy, and it is to walk humbly with God, Ephesians chapters 4 to 6. Now, I plan to finish today just jumping back into Ephesians, ready for next time, but I felt it very worthwhile for us to start the year by actually going back to Micah chapter 6 and just seeking a little context to our motto text, because at the time, Micah was proclaiming God's truth including these words to God's people in the southern kingdom of Israel, they were not walking humbly with God. You see, therefore, our motto text this year, I think it carries great weight both to those of us that are Christians as a daily reminder of how we should be walking with God, but also a direct challenge to those listening who aren't Christians to know here is a requirement from God of you to walk humbly with Him. So if walking humbly with God is the key, well, we have to ask ourselves, don't we, what does that look like? What does that look like? Well, I have three points for us this morning as we look at this passage in Micah, the first eight verses to start the year. Number one, walking humbly with God is to listen to Him. Verse 1, listen to what the Lord says. I wonder how you would um, explain a church service to, to one of your friends. Maybe it would be something like this. Well, 
we, we sing some songs and we, we pray to God. Uh, someone reads the Bible and then someone speaks on that passage from the Bible. Uh, and then we have some refreshments and we'll talk afterwards. That's a church service. That's likely how many of us have described church in the past. <laughs> I think I probably have on a number of occasions. But the truth is that's not very accurate. It's missing the two most important parts of what we attempt to do here with God's help every Sunday service at Grace. Number one, we come to worship God in song, in prayer. And number two, we come to listen to God speak to us through His Word. Well, if we answer that way or explain church that way, that will get some questions. What do you mean? You, come, you go to church to listen to God speak. That all sounds a bit supernatural. Well, yes, it is. <laughs> Have you read the Bible? What an opportunity. Let's look at the Bible together. This is God's Word. He does speak to us. Growing up in a Christian family that went to church, one of the questions that I think my parents heard, um, probably more Sundays than what they ever should have, was, who's speaking today? <laughs> who's speaking today? And you see, we wanted to work out whether in our opinion, was it going to be an engaging, passionate, current preacher, or was it going to be someone that we deemed, in our opinion, to be a, a, um, archaic, um, uh, of the last century, uh, very uh, monotone in their delivery. And we were also, you know, what are we bracing ourselves for? 30 minutes, 40 minutes, or 50 minutes? <laughs> well, do you know, it's not only children, is it? who asked the question, who's preaching today? Yet the truth is, where the Bible is opened, where it is read and expounded faithfully, even if very badly, uh, even if over-simplistically, or if too complicated, or if uh, repetitively so, God, the same being, speaks every week every time we open His Word. The God of the Bible exists, and He is not a silent God. He is not an absent God. He is not a disinterested God. He is not a God who is aloof. That's what Satan wants you to believe, and he's convinced many of in Britain today. But it's not true. God does exist, and God is both present and active. And God, as He has always done and continues to do today, speaks to His people through His Word, the Bible. Verse 1, listen to what the Lord says. What a first verse to actually start to think about together as we start 2024. You see, don't come to church this year uh, to listen to Malcolm, to listen to Quentin, Colin, Nigel, Nigel, Paul, Visiting speakers. No. Come to church wanting to listen to God. Try not to ask that question, who's speaking this week? If that's important to you, I think it is highly likely you've already gone awry. Humbly walking with God involves listening to Him. Preparing yourself each Sunday, whoever is preaching, and asking God, God, speak to me today through your word. My favorite example of how unimportant the preacher is and how important God's word is 
is Charles Spurgeon's own testimony. And I couldn't resist an extract this morning. Now, here are his words. I sometimes think I might have been in darkness and despair until now, had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning while I was going down to a certain place of worship. I turned uh, down a side street and came to a little primitive Methodist church. In that chapel, there may have been a dozen or 15 people. I had heard of the primitive Methodists, how they sang so loudly they made people's heads ache, but that did not matter to me. I wanted to know how I might be saved. Let me ask you, if you're not a Christian here today, if you're listening today and you're not a Christian, do you ask that question? (laughs) Are you coming to church? Lord, speak to me today. How might I be saved? But back to Spurgeon, this is what he says, that the minister did not come that morning. He was snowed up, I suppose. At last, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker, tailor, or something of that sort, went up into the pulpit to preach. Now it is well that preachers be instructed. But this man was really stupid. (laughs) That's his own words. He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had little else to say. The text was this. Look unto me, and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. Isaiah 45, 22. He did not even pronounce the words rightly, but that did not matter. There was, I thought, a glimmer of hope for me in that text. Look unto me, and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. Charles Spurgeon went to church that morning wanting to hear God, and he heard God speak to him that day, and every day thereafter, through his word, the Bible. He became actually a world-famous preacher of the gospel, nicknamed the Prince of Preachers, but surely within his own conversion, he understood where the power was. It was in God's word, not in the preacher. Back to Micah chapter 6, verse 1. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up, plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. Here is a picture from God through his prophet of a courtroom. It's a courtroom. And God is calling for witnesses as he brings his case, his charge against his people. You see, walking with God is to listen to God. And as we listen to God, we can know God. We can know God. And I think the first thing that we find out here in Micah chapter 6 is that God will hold his people to account. God will hold his people to account. And actually, if you read the whole book, Micah reminds us, as to all the other prophets in the Old Testament, that God is a God who is always observing his people. He sees and knows everything that we do. Micah was actually proclaiming God's word to the southern kingdom of Israel when they were enjoying a time of great prosperity, materially. And yet what God observed of them is really sobering. If you have your Bibles open 
turn back to chapter 2. Chapter 2, let me read some verses from chapter 2. Here's chapter 2, verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1. Woe to those who plan iniquity, to those who plot evil on their beds. At morning's light, they carry it out because it's in their power to do it. They cover fields and seize them, and houses and take them. They defraud people of their homes. They rob them of their inheritance. Move on to to verse 8 of chapter 2. Lately, my people have risen up like an enemy. You strip off the rich robe from those who pass by without a care, like men returning from battle. You drive the, the women of my people from their pleasant homes. You take away my blessing from their children forever. And all this despite God's love and provision for them. See, go back to chapter 6 now, and let's listen to God's testimony in his courtroom, because we've got God's testimony in verses 3 to 5. This is what God says, My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. What a reminder of Israel's redemption. You can read about that in the book of Exodus. Well, God continues, verse 5. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, plotted, and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Well, here is God recalling the events of Numbers, chapter 22 to 24. If you know that account, you'll know that's where Balak uh, hired Balaam, a a wicked prophet, seemingly of, of some power to curse Israel. But if you know that account, you'll know that God caused Balaam, much to the annoyance of Balak. It's it's quite an entertaining read if you do read it. To bless Israel multiple times, even though he didn't want to. God continues, remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. Well, lastly, God, I think, is referring here to Joshua chapter 3. And, and crossing the Jordan River that, that we read in the Bible was at, at full flood, <laughs> as full as a river can be. And yet the Israelites walked through on dry ground, right through the middle, with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord out in front. God is saying, why are you living as you are when I have saved you, redeemed you, when you can look back over your history and you can know my love and mercy, you can know my righteous acts. So if we listen to God today through Micah, we can know God. We know that God held his people to account. We know that God observed every aspect of their life. We see that that God is a personal God. Look at the plea twice, it is. My people, verse 3 and verse 5. That that Hebrew word, I think, has a, a parental aspect to it, and I think it's picked up much better in the ESV or the New King James. They just add a one word, but it makes quite a big difference. Oh, my people. Oh, my people. He is a personal God who in his love and mercy had redeemed his people, and yet they had rejected him. But, but here is God, you see, through Micah, number five, still being patient still pleading with them to listen to him. 
And when you, you look back through, and I'm not going to put them on the board or whatever, you can listen to this again, but I think there are easily five things, probably more that we learn about God through Micah. When you look at those five things and you, you go through Bible, through the Bible, and, and you look at history, you realize we learn something else about God. God doesn't change. Number six, he doesn't change. In the New Testament, it is clear that Jesus observed everyone. Every little thing that happened, it was Jesus who spot the widow coming in with her two copper little coins and dropping them into collection. It is Jesus who called people personally to him to listen and to follow him, and he still does today. Incidentally, it was that first phrase of Isaiah 45:22, look unto me, that spoke to Charles Spurgeon. You see, that the preacher simply explained, well, everyone can do that. <laughs> everyone can look to Jesus. There is nothing stopping anyone from looking to Jesus, to look into his death on the cross for your sins and to trust in his resurrection to have new life with God. Everyone can do that. Look unto Jesus. The charge by God towards men and women for our sin, it is clear. We thought about that in one of our Christmas services, didn't we? Romans 6, 23. The wages of sin is death. And yet God, in his love, mercy, and provision, sent Jesus to redeem us, to set us free from our sin, to, to nail the charge against us to the cross. This is what we read in Colossians chapter 2. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, all the times we've broken his law, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. I, I sometimes think we can miss the thrust of that. You see, if you're in Colossae and you're reading this letter from the Apostle Paul, you're under Roman rule. And what would happen in Roman rule is if you were caught stealing something from the marketplace and you got locked up, well, the charge against you, he was caught stealing apples from the marketplace, three months in prison, it would be nailed to your prison door that you were held in. And when you were released, that, that charge would be stamped, that debt's been paid. And that would be really important because if you got caught in the marketplace again and someone came up, I saw you stealing the other day, you need to be arrested, you'd have to bring out that charge and say, no, I've paid. <laughs> and what Paul is saying to uh, the Colossians, all those charges which the devil loves to bring and say, no, you can't let these people go to heaven. They have sinned. They have wronged you. They've turned away from you. Look at their hearts, Lord. Jesus, if we turn to him, has stamped that charge with his own blood and said, paid. Look at the cross. It's nailed there. Satan, you've got no hold on these people. They're redeemed. You know, one of my fears is, is, is people living in Britain today, we can look at Micah chapter 2 and just say, well, we're not really that bad. <laughs> Are we not? You know, of all of those verses that I read earlier, the, the bit that really concerns me about the nation that I passionately care for is about that promise to the children <laughs> that, that we have not passed on God's promises to the next generation. Look at, the, look at the country that we live in today. 40, 50 years ago, God's Word was still being faithfully taught in every school, mostly every school. Children were being sent to Sunday schools. Now we're not passing that promise on. Look, look at marriage. 
What a mockery we've made of, of God's, this is the best way to live. I love you. This is the best way to live. Now look at young people, older people just living together. <laughs> Same-sex relationships. Adultery. Dad referred to it earlier, and I was looking this week, I was amazed. In 2017, there were uh, 1.5 million food parcels given out to adults and children in need. Last year, there were 3 million. It has doubled the number of adults and children in need of food parcels. The gap between rich and poor in this country continues to grow. <laughs> and yet God has blessed us with his word for hundreds of years. With churches up and down the land. Yes, some of them are closing, but God's word, he's still blessed us spiritually, hugely. He's blessed us materially. <laughs> We're going to hear probably a lot about the economy this year with an election coming up. Well, our economy, as much as it might be struggling now, is still one of the richest in the world. And how have we as a nation responded to God? And yet, God is still patient, just as he was with the southern kingdom, with, through Micah. God is still patient today. So a question, if you don't know God this morning, will you listen to him today and know him? And if you do know God, well, let me ask you, how well do you know the righteous acts of the Lord? Verse 5. How well do you know your God? Remember Paul's prayer in the first Chapter of Ephesians, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Paul's prayer in chapter 3, to know this love that surpasses knowledge. You're never going to be able to know it all, but grasp whatever you can with God's help. What steps will you put in place this year to listen to God? What steps will you put in place this year to know him better? To help you to walk with him. To help you to stand in the storms of life. To know his acts of righteousness. My, my dad's favorite hymn, I've only got the first verse here, is this hymn. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. It was written by Horatio Spafford, and at the time of writing this hymn, how that man was suffering. The great fire in Chicago in 1871 had destroyed him financially. And in fact, in the economic downturn in 1873, he decided that him and his family would move to, to Britain. And he sent his uh, wife and four daughters on ahead of him. <laughs> and tragically, their vessel, as it crossed the Atlantic, collided with another vessel. And his wife messaged him, saved alone. Lost all his four daughters. And that's when he wrote this hymn. But you see, one of the words that churches have been singing for decades now and is in most hymn books, is wrong. I found this out only this week, and I think it's tragic that it is wrong. Here's a partial, I got this from his, his own website, that the family obviously run it, spaffordhymns.com. Here's the original lyrics. If you can't spot the change, here it is. 
You see, we sing, Thou hast taught me to say. His original words that he wrote when he was suffering was, Thou hast taught me to know. That makes a big difference, doesn't it? Because I would say that the religions of this world teach you things to say, that the heart of Christianity is what we know. Know about God. Know about his righteous acts. Ollie, I don't know what we have, or Joe, but we're going to change ours back to the original. You see, at this time of writing, Horatio Spafford knew his God, and it saw him through this horrific trial, knowing God's righteous acts. Walking humbly with God is to listen to him. It is to know God. It is to know his righteous acts. Well, secondly, walking humbly with God is to learn from him. There is spiritual and often practical application that we should take away every time that we listen to God. And in Micah chapter 6, verses 6 to 7, God tells us, well, he tells us exactly what isn't required to walk with him as our God. And it may actually surprise some of us. You see, in Micah um, chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, Micah seemingly switches roles here. It's one of those things, if you quickly read the Bible, you'll completely miss it. But he switches roles here. God has laid down his charge, verses 1 to 5. And in verses 6 to 7, this is really the response of God's people. What shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for my sin, for the sin of my soul? You see, it's as if the people were responding to God and saying, is it even possible to please you? Don't you demand too much? Now, even if I come before you with, with calves a, a year old, that, that would be a big deal back then. If you had kept a calf for a year, it's probably because it was strong and healthy and you're hoping that it was going to have baby calves and, and your flock grows. Well, even if I come before you with a calf a year old, will you forgive me? What about offering you thousands of rams or, or rivers of oil? What about if, like Abraham, we willingly offer you our firstborn sons? Will that be good enough? It's as if they're saying, look, we've tried to please you, Lord, but you don't accept what we offer. That, that's their reply to, to God's charge. At, at face value, they were sacrificing away. Seems like they were, they were, they were, they were trying to um, hope that God would just cast a blind eye and, and, and hear our offerings, Lord, this is what you want. And it's clear that none of these sacrifices is what God required. If our hearts and our lives aren't right before God, if we're going through life just giving God a little lip service from Sunday to Sunday, then no amount of church attendance, prayers, readings, money donated, helping out at church events, pleases God. None of it does. God is not interested in religious acts, but rather the hearts and the lives of his people, people who walk daily with him. God had made this point so strongly to the northern kingdom of Israel through his prophet Amos. Amos, what a, this is what we read in Amos 5. This is what God said. I hate 
I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. God will not be fooled. And God will not be made a fool of. No. God has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly. To love mercy. And to walk humbly with God. It's not really rocket science, is it? And it is not overly demanding at all on our side. God just wants us, his people, men and women who he has created, to walk humbly with him, to listen to him, to to learn from him, how to act justly. What on earth is it to love mercy? To know him, to know his way is best, and to be obedient to him. Remember, Samuel's rebuke of King Saul after Saul had panicked and just gone ahead and offered the sacrifices to God without waiting as he was instructed to do for the prophet of God. This is what we read in Samuel. Samuel replies, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice and to heed or to to listen, to pay attention to is better than the fat of rams. Saul had been worried that there was an enemy on the horizon. But what arrogance to take matters into his own hands, to not walk humbly with God, which is to walk obediently with God. Well, it's a new year. There are different views in churches and across Christians about whether New Year's resolutions are good or of any benefit. But it never hurts us, does it, as God's people to pause And to look over our own hearts, to look at our own walks with God, and to ponder, are we living out Romans chapter 12? Are we living it out? Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, in view of that forgiveness and redemption that you have received in Christ, Ephesians chapter 1, in view of the way you were spiritually dead, And God made you alive in Christ, Ephesians chapter 2, in view of this mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. That that involves to listen and to live by the instructions we're going to receive through Ephesians chapters 4 to 6, because this is your true and proper worship. That is what it is to walk humbly with God. So let us work hard together this year to listen and to learn from God as we go through the rest of Ephesians together. And we need to watch out as well as we do that, to watch out for any legalism. It could creep in. Apparently, um, Pastor Isaac Newton, who wrote the hymn Amazing Grace, felt that Micah 6.8 was one of the most misunderstood verses in the Bible. I wonder if he had seen people take Micah 6.8 and put it in place of the gospel. (laughs) You know, people just, well, here's the formula to life. Let let me be fair, let me be merciful, and I'll I'll be humble, 
and God will be happy with me. Because a good God, if he exists, well, he will reward nice people if they just do their best. Maybe that's what Isaac Newton had seen. And we're back to, you see, religion with, with people trying to contribute to their salvation. That is not understanding Micah 6.8. The only way to grasp Micah 6.8 is with the gospel. It is to look to God. The secret to learning and applying our motto text for this year and beyond, you see, isn't in our righteous acts, but it is to know God's righteous acts. It is God who gave of his only son to die on the cross as a sacrifice for us. God has shown us, verse 8, what is good. Jesus is good. If you've kept your Bibles open, just pop back to chapter 5. Here are verses that uh, we look at often at, at Christmas time. I don't think I referenced them this year. Because you see, just a chapter earlier, we find that the great hope for the southern kingdom of Israel was Jesus. Just as Jesus is our great hope today. This is what we read, chapter 5, verse 2. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathra, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, i.e. he is God. Verse 4, he will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely, for then his greatness, his justice, his mercy, his humble humility, his, his walk with God will reach to the ends of the earth and he will be our peace. To act justly and to love mercy, to walk humbly, are three things that do not come naturally to our human nature. Don't believe me? <laughs> Look at the world around you that you live in. <laughs> they do not come naturally. What we believe is fair or is merciful is far from God's view of justice and mercy. So if we as Christians are to act justly and, and to love mercy in church with our brothers and sisters, at home with our families, at work, at school, even in the midst of the spiritual battles that we will face, it will involve humbly and obediently walking with God. And walking with God is to listen to God. It is to learn to God. And it is to look to God. Because what we can't do, He can. He can change us. I promised you we'd come back to Ephesians. Let me read these verses that we ended on last year. Now to Him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to His power that is at work within us, to him be glory. The Christian lives for God's glory. No one else's. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.